going through the, the book of Philippians. And uh, it's kind of a neat book. But when I first started talking, thinking about um, Paul, when I first got saved just about 50 years ago, I thought, man, this guy's arrogant. You know, he's hard to read sometimes, and he's really hard to get to understand. But the more you get to know who he is and you hear to see his heart, the more you love him. He's not arrogant. He just, he just knows what he wants. He just knows how to talk to the people, and he knows what he wants to give them. And that's life. He wants to give them life. And the church of Philippi was a very, very rich church. It was very blessed. So he's telling them, you know, keep up the good work and don't worry about things. I want to give you more. And we're, when we get to where we are now with Paul, he's on his journey to, to Rome. He's in chains. And he hasn't given up. Everybody knows what's going on. Everybody knows that Paul's in chains for this guy named Jesus. And he's not ashamed of who he's talking about. He's not ashamed that he's in chains because he knows his destination. And he's very, very um, happy with that. He knows what's going to happen. And he wants us to know the same thing. So, I thought I would read from the NIV first, and then I'm going to go to the message. Because you get, the, you get a different perspective of what Paul is saying. So, Paul's changed the advance of the gospel. We're reading from chapter 1, verse 12 to 18. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone that I am chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of my brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they could stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. So, I want to read from the message now. It, it, that gives us a whole different point slam here. I want to report to you, friends, that my imprisonment here has had the opposite effect of its, of its intention. Instead of being squelched, the message has actually prospered. All the soldiers here, and everyone else too, Found out that I'm in jail because of this, this Messiah. That piqued their curiosity, and now they've learned all about him. 
Not only that, but most of the followers of Jesus have become far more sure of themselves in the faith than ever, speaking out fearlessly about God, about the Messiah. It's true that some here preach Christ because with me out of the way, they think they'll step right into the spotlight. But the others do it with the best heart in the world. One group is motivated by pure love, knowing that I am here defending the message, wanting to help. The others, now that I'm out of the picture, are merely greedy, hoping for something out of it for themselves. Their motives are bad. They see me as their competition. And so the worse it goes for me, the better they think for them. So how am I to respond? I've decided that I really don't care what their, about their motives, whether mixed, bad, or indifferent. Every time one of them opens his mouth, Christ is proclaimed, so I cheer them on. I find it really, really fascinating that Paul is so, so much in love with God, so, so much in love with the people, that his love overflows where he's at. He doesn't care about himself at all. He cares about the people. He cares about the message that Christ wants him to, to preach. The message gets out, and everybody knows who he is. He's that troublemaker from Jerusalem who tried to stop, stop and squelch the message to start, to start with, who has now become so enthralled with God and with Christ that nothing else matters. He's completely turned his life upside down and all around. He's a whole different person now. I want, I want us to look at ourselves. Who were you before Jesus came into your life? What were you doing before Jesus came into your life? And how, how have you changed?
bad spot. And she didn't belong there. That's all we could tell her. So I sat down, and, and they were talking to her. And Crane gets up, and he says to this guy, this young lady, he says, you see that guy over there? Something's important to me. He says, they won't tell you, he won't hurt you. They'll pray with you, and he'll talk to you, and he'll tell you about what's going on. They'll help you. And I, I'm sitting there, and I'm wondering, who is this guy you're talking about? But it's true, you know, your, your, your story goes out. And people know you from who you are because it, you can't change the circumstances of your life. But you can tell people about Jesus and you can love people where they're at and you can honor people where they're at. And that's what it's all about. This is what Paul is doing. He's honoring people where they're at. And just, I, I want to read something here because Jesus spoke about this. And uh, he speaks in Mark chapter uh, 9, verse 38. He said, Teacher, said John, we saw one, someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because it was not one of us. Don't stop them, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. See, Jesus is backing up Paul. Paul didn't even really, he didn't quote this. And he should have. But it just makes it more aware, emphasizes what Paul is saying. It doesn't matter. The word is getting out. And Paul is rejoicing. He's so happy that people are listening to his voice and learning about Jesus. Now, um, you probably saw this book. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's called The Insanity of God. And it's really deep because it speaks to us about the need to proclaim who Jesus is. See, the guy that wrote the book first went with the um, UN and he went, in, he went into um, uh, the Sudan and in that area there, Eritrea, and it's one of the real tough places in the world. And he was trying to find out, and serve God that way, trying to find people who knew God. And he couldn't find anybody. He found four, four people in there and they were executed because they were Christians. And nobody heard anything about it except him. And he's thinking, what is going on? And he was he was searching to find out how God would become more, um, people would become more aware of God. And they couldn't because nobody was talking about him. If you don't talk about him, how are, you, how are the people going to know him? If you don't speak about him, nobody's going to know and can't, there can't be any controversy. So when, it, when everything's just blah, God, Jesus had come to the forefront. There's a, a story in here I want to read to you. And he's gone, this man has gone to Russia. 
as early in the next morning, Victor and his friend picked me up. We saw them. We began a four-hour drive through the countryside, north of Moscow. On the way, Victor told me what he knew about Dmitri, his fellow believer, who had suffered much for the faith. For the rest of the trip, I listened to Victor and his friend recount their faith journeys and life stories. This is Paul in action to somebody else. We finally arrived at a small Russian village and stopped in front of a tiny dwelling. Dimitri opened the door and graciously welcomed us into his tiny home. I want you to sit here, he instructed me. This was where I was sitting when the authorities came to arrest me and sent me to prison for 17 years. I settled in and listened with rapt attention as Dimitri related his unforgettable personal story for the next few hours. He told me that he had been born and raised in a believing family. His parents had taken him from the church to the church as a child. Over the decades, he explained, communism slowly destroyed most of the churches and places of worship. Many pastors were imprisoned or killed. By the time he was grown, Dimitri told me the nearest remaining church building was a three-day walk away. It was impossible for a family to attend church more than once or twice a year. One day, he, he said, Dimitri told me, I said to my wife, you probably think that I'm insane. I know that I have no religious training whatsoever, but I am concerned about our sons growing up without learning about Jesus. This may sound like a crazy idea, but what would you think if just one night a week we gathered the boys together so I could read them a Bible story and try to give them a little of the training they are missing because they no longer have a real church? What Dimitri didn't know was that his wife had been praying for years that her husband would do something like that. She, re re uh, she readily embraced this idea. He started teaching his family one night a week. Dimitri would read from the old family Bible, and he would try to explain what he had just read, read so the children would understand. As he related and retold the Bible stories, his son soon began to help with the task. Eventually, the boys and Dimitri and his wife were telling me familiar stories back and forth to each other. The more they learned, the more the children seemed to enjoy their family worship time together. Eventually, the boys started asking for more. Papa, can we sing those songs that they sing when we go to the real church? Dimitri and his wife taught them traditional songs of their faith. This seemed a natural progression. Firebly not only to read the Bible and sing, but also to take time together to pray. And they began to do that. Nothing could be hidden from for long in a small village. Houses were close together and windows were often open. Neighbors began noticing what was going on in Dimitri's family. Some of them asked if they could come and listen to the Bible stories and sing the familiar songs. Dimitri protested. He was not trained to do this. He wasn't a minister. His excuse didn't seem to dissuade his neighbors, and a small group began gathering to share the reading and telling and discussing the Bible stories and to sing and pray together. By the time the little group grew to 20 people, the authorities had noticed local party officials came to see Dimitri. They threatened him physically, which was to be expected. What, what upset Dimitri more was his accusation, you have started an illegal church. 
How can you say that, he argued. I have no religious training. I am not a pastor. This is not a church building. We are just a group of family and friends getting together. All we do is read and talk about the Bible, sing, praying, and sometimes sharing what money we have to help out a poor neighbor. How can you call that a church? Well, I'm going to tell you, that is church in action. I'm not a pastor. There's other people here to speak. They're not pastors either. But the gospel is shared. That's, that's pastor. That's sharing what God gives you. I almost laughed at the irony of his claim, but this, but this was early in my pilgrimage. I could not easily appreciate the truth that he was sharing. Looking back now, I understand that one of the most ac- accurate ways to direct and, and to, to, pardon me, detect and measure the activity of God is to note the amount of opposition that it presents. The stronger the persecution, the more significant the spiritual reality and vitality to the believers. Surprisingly, all too often, persecutors sense the activity of God before the believing participants even realize the significance of what is happening. In the case of Dimitri, the officials could sense the threat of what he was doing long before it even crossed his mind. The communist official told Dimitri, we don't care what you call it, but it looks like a church to us. And if you don't stop it, bad things are going to happen. When the group grew to 50 people, the authorities made good on their threats. I got fired from my factory job, Dimitri announced. My wife lost her teaching position. My boys were expelled from school. When the number of people grew to 75, there was a place for every there was no place for everyone to sit. Villagers stood shoulder to shoulder, cheek to cheek, inside the house. They pressed close around the windows on the outside so they could listen to the, as this man led them to God and told them of God in worship. Then one night, Dimitri, as Dimitri spoke, sitting in the chair where I was now seated, the door of the house suddenly, violently burst open. An officer and soldiers pushed through the crowd. The officer grabbed Dimitri by the shirt, slapped him rhythmically back and forth across the face, slammed him against the wall and said in a cold voice, We have warned you, and warned you, and warned you. I will not warn you again. If you do not stop this nonsense, this is the least that's going to happen to you. As the officer pushed his way back toward the door, a small grandmother took her life in her hands stepped out of anonymity.
And on Thursday night, the officers dropped dead from a heart attack. The fear of God swept through the community. In the next house church service, no, uh, more than 150 people showed up. The authorities couldn't let this continue, so Dimitri went to jail for 17 years. I knew because Dimitri was sitting in front of me in his own home that this particular persecution story was ultimately a story of survival and of victory. This story would obviously have a happy ending, but it didn't mean that the story wasn't going to be nice or easy to hear. Indeed, it was a painful story. Dimitri spoke quietly of long, heart-wrenching separation. He spoke of sweat, blood, and tears. He talked about sons growing up without their father in the house. He described a poor, struggling family enduring great hardship. This was not the kind of inspirational testimony that we, testimony that we love to celebrate, but it was raw, biblical faith. This was the story of one man who refused to let go of Jesus and refused to tell, uh, stop telling him the good news to his family and neighbors. And that was not enough. The rest of Dimitri's story would be one of the most remarkable, life-changing testimonies I've ever heard. I'll just summarize that testimony. He, was, he used to get up in the morning and turn to the east in jail. And he would raise his hands and praise the Lord. And there was 1,500 prisoners in that, in that jail. And they ridiculed him day after day after day for that 17 years. And then one day the, the authorities came to Dimitri and said, your family's dead. Nobody wants you. Why don't you just give up your God and, and, and go? And he said, I'll tell you, I'll make my decision in the morning. So he was sleeping and praying that night and he heard his wife and his children praying for him. He had to be heard in that prison they were a long, long ways away. And the next morning the guards came to him, took him out into the yard and they were going to shoot him. And at that moment, 1,500 prisoners raised their hands, looked at the east and praised the Lord. Every one of those prisoners praised the Lord because of his testimony. Guards were absolutely appalled, and they were shaken, and they kicked him out of prison. They let him go. That's the story of testimony. That's the story of Paul. In our day and age, we have no idea, my friends, what we are, who we are, or how we can affect other people. We have no idea. Every time you speak about Jesus to someone, you're speaking into their lives because God said, everyone's going to know about me. Everyone is going to know about me. And here's Paul in prison, and people are saying, well, these other guys are talking about you. They just want to make a good name for themselves. I don't care. I don't care. Jesus is being preached. Jesus is being Name out loud. Someone is talking about Jesus. 
someone is hearing for the first time who this Jesus is. And they're going to ask you questions. They're going to ask questions about who Jesus is. And you and your own small way are going to tell them, this is my friend, my buddy. This is my God who loves me so deeply that he died for me. He loves me that much. Rejoicing that someone is announcing the name of his friend is more important than anything else. That's what Jesus is, is all about. He says, everybody's going to know about me. One way or the other, you're going to know about me. If you don't talk about me, nobody will ever know about me. But a rock will cry out. your wife, you talk about your husband, you talk about your kids, they're important, but your faith is also important, more important than anything else, because it defines who you are, and my wife is always pushing me to help define who I am, and she's saying, you know, remember, remember what God said, remember how you earned this. Keep on trying. We're not all to be Billy Graham's. We're not all to be um, anybody famous. But we're famous in God's eyes because we proclaim His Son. And if there's anyone here who has never heard about Jesus, who has never given their lives to Jesus, who hasn't made that step, Jesus can do for you and how he can change your life and change your thought patterns and change your actions 
and bring you into salvation, and bring you into, into a, a close friendship with Him. That's what He wants. I want to pray that, Father, you know, you've given us everything. You gave us your Son. You gave us life. And He gave us life for each one of us, Lord. And our lives are nothing without you, without your son. And I would ask, Lord, that if there's anyone here, that you would touch their hearts right now. And you would fill them with with your love, with your forgiveness. And draw them into fellowship with you, Jesus. That's our heart's desire for everyone. Thank you.